Welcome to the Decipher Podcast. Uh, Andy Greenberg from Wired Magazine is my guest today, and I'm really excited to talk to Andy. Uh, for folks who uh, may not have read it yet, please go to your internet web browser thingies right now and go read Andy's story um, on the NotPetya outbreak from uh, about a year ago, a little more than a year ago now, Andy? I think it was last spring, yeah, right? In two months. I'm you know, I shouldn't say that out loud since it's not usually a good idea to write a story 14 months after an event. But it took about that long to get this done. Yeah, that's what it, so I want to talk to you about a whole bunch of things. But um, one of the things that really kind of caught my eye on or, you know, as a as a fellow journalist, I, I immediately wondered, like, how did you what was your initial hook into the story? I mean, I wrote about it at the time. So did you a, a lot of a other security writers wrote about it in various bits and pieces. But when you started thinking about doing this big piece on it and eventually a book, I guess, what was your kind of way into it initially? Well, I wrote about the news of NotPetya on the day. I was as confused as everybody else trying to figure out, is this ransomware? Is it part of the Ukrainian cyber war that I've been covering? In fact, I just a week earlier, bizarrely released, you know, we had released uh, an earlier wired cover story on the Ukraine cyber war, the Russian hackers, you know, totally pummeling every strata of Ukrainian society. Yep. And then really the the day that the magazine hit subscribers mailboxes, this not Petya thing happened. And I was really I was trying to figure out, is this criminal ransomware? Is it another WannaCry? Who released it? Um, I didn't at first think that it was sandworm that or the the hacker group that had performed these blackout attacks in ukraine mm -hmm. i didn't i couldn't even see if it was you know any evidence that it was russian state-sponsored hacking it seemed like it might have just been some kind of criminal ransomware as you know for the first hours and uh only over the course of the day did it start to become clear that this wasn't really ransomware it was a destructive wiper it wasn't a likely act of cyber war and then I, you know, so I started reporting this out and, and I wrote, I, you know, I, I don't want to claim that it was the first, but I think it might've been the first story. This is not any old ransomware. This is an act of cyber war. And, um, that was based in large part on talking to Ukrainian sources who are always quick to blame Russia, but they had good evidence that this was a part of that cyber war, that it wasn't, you know, that, that there was no way to pay the ransom, that it was on a day ahead of their Constitution Day holiday, mm -hmm. that you know there had been an assassination that day, that there were other signs tying this to earlier fake ransomware attacks in Ukraine. So you know the pieces started to add up that this was very likely a, another act of you know state-sponsored aggression des designed to disrupt and destroy and not to earn money. Yeah, that was the the initial thing. I remember relatively quickly that day. Um, talking to somebody that said, you know, that I don't think this is ransomware because um, nobody's accepting payments. Like the, the, the Bitcoin wallet that was being used, like nobody was doing anything with it. And like for a while, there wasn't even a way to make payments, right? Right. And, you know, I had heard this from Ukrainians, but then Matt Swish, if that's how you pronounce his name, was the yeah. first to publicize this, that it was it was not ransomware. It was a wiper. You could just you could see in the code that there was no mechanism for decryption. So um, that became clear just as I was you know, publishing the story, um, our wired story on that. That was the first piece I wrote about it. 
but I still was just, you know, I, I didn't see the scope of it. I'm not sure anybody did that first day. Maybe, yeah. Ukrainians, yeah. maybe Ukrainians did, you know, ISSP, who I've been speaking to the Ukrainian security company, they called this a massive coordinated cyber invasion that same night. Um, but I didn't know if I believed them that it was of, this, <laughs> of just how broad it was or, you know, that it would spread around the world. None of that was, was really clear quite yet. We could see the reports that Maersk was hit and Merck and FedEx. That was all starting to come to light, but it took months to see the, the size of the damage done to those companies. These shareholder reports that were coming out of hundreds of millions of dollars for each of the companies that would honestly, like it took many quarters of those financial disclosures for the full size of the impact to become clear. It was, you know, only when we were fact checking, um, my magazine story, this late, this now, this most recent story, it was a kind of slow burn thing of realizing that this was the, you know, a massive, massive event, the, the most expensive cyber attack industry. Yeah. Which is, I mean, there's a lot of ways to look at that. I think, you know, the, the financial impact that you, you just spoke about on all these massive companies. And um, there also has to be like a lot of just kind of unknowable costs, right? Like just a bunch of, uh, you know, utilities and companies in Ukraine that were just down. And like, how do you measure the cost of people not having electricity for a while or, you know, not being able to get gas or not being able to get food? Yeah, I don't think that people lost electricity as far as I know, but they, you know, but hospitals were shut down. Yeah. Point of sale systems were shut down, gas stations, um, transit systems um, were shut down by the, you couldn't pay, you know, you couldn't pay for a ticket to get on this, the Kiev Metro. Right. So, um, it, yeah, the cost of that is not just financial. It, you know, it, it's like a kind of terror. Really, momentarily, the sense that their society was, you know, was shut down. That's not a, a just a financial attack. Although, you know, this did hit all the banks in Ukraine. A lot of people initially described it as an attack on the Ukrainian finance um, system, but it wasn't just that. It was, it was truly. I don't know. I, I hesitate to like use these terms that have been overused, like yeah. I won't say cyber nine eleven or something. But it was a kind of like fire sale type attack that just hit so many parts of society at once in Ukraine. Yeah, but then it did. You know, it did spread to the rest of the world too, and and it caused un, immeasurable damage in other ways. You know, globally. Aside from all of these shareholder reports that you know I was just talking about, yeah, that to me was one of the the things that made it difficult to kind of wrap your arms around at the beginning. You know, last year when all this was happening, is that it wasn't just Ukraine; it, it hit everywhere. Like there was a lot of damage in London, as you report, or England um, in general, as you reported, and lots of other countries too here in the U.S. Lots of places. Um, so you know, I think. People knew relatively early on that it was kind of centered in Ukraine, but it wasn't just there. You know, you, so you couldn't just be like, well, they only targeted this. But then once you realized it was it had these worm capabilities and was just kind of getting out everywhere, then that kind of changed the thinking, too. Right. Right. I mean, this it's not clear 
still, whether it was meant to spread beyond Ukraine to everyone who did business with Ukraine, or if it was that was an accident. But it truly spread globally. And you know, we know about Western victims like all of these multinational companies because they have, you know, they have public finances because they're public companies. We don't know who else must have suffered from this. It's there's no question that private companies around the world that you know who like I'm, I'm sure that this hits in China, for instance, and mm-hmm. um, all over probably Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East, and like we we probably will never know the full full extent of those companies' damages or government agencies around the world that might have had this piece of Ukrainian accounting software that was kind of a patient zero installed. I mean, uh, they don't have to tell us their damages. So the the $10 billion number that the White House told me, that Tom Bossert confirmed, um, that is a floor. It's not the ceiling. Like, we don't know the, the full extent of the damage. That is just crazy to think about, honestly. I mean, even in a, a time of, like, kind of enormous numbers and, you know, absurd financial transactions and things like that. You're just like $10 billion from what essentially, you know, whether they meant for it to spread, uh, you know, around the world or not was essentially a targeted attack on, you know, one country by another country. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you know, as I write in the piece, it's a, I think it should be a lesson about cyber war and, the unintended consequences, the collateral damage of, of network-based attacks. When you release a worm as a as a as a you know an act of cyber war, you can't control it. Like it, you know, a, yeah. one nation attacking another becomes one one nation attacking the world very quickly, and that's what happened. It's and it's incredibly dangerous, and it needs to be a lesson for everyone, you know, about vulnerability and and uh, it should be a lesson for the kind of reckless rogue states that might release this, that it's, they, they should know that they can't control these kinds of weapons or that they, you know, at the very least they need to build in a kind of, um, some sort of safety mechanism into their worm. If that's even, it's not like an oxymoron, um, that, that limits its damage to the intended target. I mean, that, that didn't exist here and it was, you know, the whole world suffered as a consequence. Yeah, there's no doubt. And I, I don't think that these are stupid people, you know, putting, building these things. I, I think by definition, they're intelligent because they're, you know, to be able to build something like this, it takes a lot of, uh, a lot of skill and a lot of thought and a lot of, uh, time put into it. But that kind of, they're, they're, they don't seem to be thinking about that kind of stuff. I agree with you, Andy. I don't, I don't, you can look at, uh, something as far back as Stuxnet. You know, that was designed for one very specific purpose, but once it got onto some Windows machines, all hell broke loose and had these unintended consequences that obviously um, the builders of that particular uh, weapon were not thinking about either. Yeah, that's right. I mean, but, I, you know, I, I do think that Stuxnet was a far more careful worm than... Um, oh, yeah. I bet you, I mean, it didn't... It, it was discovered because it spread too far... And I, th- I guess it probably, you know, I'm not, I don't remember the kind of um, uh, symptoms of Stuxnet that well for unintended victims, but I'm sure it caused a lot of crashing and stuff. Um, I think that's how it was first discovered. That's right. But it, but it, um, but it, it didn't, you know, destroy anybody else's centrifuges 
other than the intended targets, you know, most of us didn't have any to be destroyed. So, uh, not petty is a different animal. It's like, uh, it, the damage that it was intended to do to one target happened to everyone. Um, and I, you know, to be clear, like Craig Williams at Cisco Talos, he doesn't attribute this to incompetence. He attributes it to malice that the, he thinks that the, the sandworm hackers behind this, um, did intend to send a message to everyone who does business with Ukraine, not just Ukrainians themselves, that you know you need to stay away from this country. This is uh, our victim, and uh, you know, hands off. If you do business with Ukraine, you'll you'll suffer too, um, which is what happens. Yep. Um, and that's sorry. that's kind of a. Uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I don't know if you heard that beep. I'm going to try to. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> oh. um, that's a chilling thought, honestly, is to what you just described, is that this is basically a show of force. You know, they intended to go after the targets in Ukraine, but at the same time, they wanted it to be kind of, you know, a mafia style message to everybody else being like, look what we did here and we can do it to you and we will do it to you if we feel like it. I think so. And, and I think it was, you know, it does, you can see that like the, um, well, a lot of people in Ukraine who I've spoken to believe that the this whole series of cyber attacks that's been happening since 2015 is intended in part to scare away investors, scare, scare away multinational companies that might do business in Ukraine to hurt the Ukrainian economy that way. And uh, this was a much more direct message to anyone who would you know have those kinds of financial ties to the country that you know you need to stay away or you'll you'll get wrapped up in this cyber war that you don't want to be a part of. Right. So one of the really fascinating parts of this story to me um, is the kind of supply chain um, piece of it. And for, you know, people that don't know all the details, uh, a big part of this was the attackers going in and backdooring an update server for uh, this Ukrainian financial services software company. I think you described it as essentially like TurboTax um, for the Ukrainian, uh, you know, economy. Like everybody that files taxes uses this software. Um, can right. you explain exactly how that whole chain of events went from, you know, from what you reported out? Well, Linkos Group is the name of the software company. And uh, they sell this piece of software called MEDOC. And... They're a pretty small company, you know, in this um, pretty obscure part of Kiev, like um, a very kind of grim industrial neighborhood. Um, the, it's a father and daughter company. They uh, never really thought about security. She kind of, um, Alessia Linick, who I interviewed, the, the daughter, who is the, the um, director of the company and uh really is managing Emidoc now. Um, she, she pretty openly said that they had never thought about security like this because they just didn't think that they could be wrapped up in, you know, in this kind of sophisticated cyber attack. It's, it's not, um, I don't, that's, uh, kind of understandable, I guess, given the, the you know, they, they didn't think that they had to encrypt their updates, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, obviously was mistaken, but you can imagine being a small Ukrainian software company. That's not your, you're trying to make your software stable and make money. And, um, 
you're not thinking about the fact that uh, that your this application could be backdoored and used as like the the genesis of a massive disaster. So um, yeah, they were completely unprepared, and their update server was hacked. Um, there were there were a series of malicious updates put out. Um, there are hints that they that um, espionage malware may have been planted in some of those initial updates mm-hmm. before uh, the hackers finally used it as a channel to release NotPetya. Um, but part of the many Ukrainians believe that um, one of the goals of NotPetya was to wipe all of these systems and and destroy any evidence of what they've been doing for months. I think it was between April and late June. They uh, these hackers had essentially free run of all of these systems before they, you know, pulled the trigger and just destroyed them all. That's yeah, that another chilling thought. But um, I'm sure you've heard the the same rumors I have over the years of these kind of attacks having happened to uh, some prominent software companies in the U.S. and other places like that. And it's one of those kind of mechanisms uh, or vectors of attack that if you really stop and think about it has huge potential for disaster. You know, the, the idea of um, malicious or backdoored updates because, you know, (laughs) reporters like us and security experts for, you know, 20 years now have been hammering into everybody's head, patch, 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 update, 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 you know, as soon as something is available, download it and install it. And if, if something like this had happened to, you know, who knows, you know, something like TurboTax, for example, I don't want to single them out, but something that, you know, has hundreds of millions of users instead of a smaller number like MEDOC does, the potential for disaster is just enormous. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And we, we have started to see uh, more use of supply chain attacks of, of these of these software update um, backdoors. I guess the CCleaner one, mm-hmm. um, Avast, is that correct? I'm just trying to... I've written about this, but it's, it's, not, I haven't looked at it for a little while. But it, it looks like um, increasingly like uh, this state-sponsored Chinese hacker crew there used the, uh, that CCleaner backdoor to target um, a very specific list of, of multinational companies um, and did successfully pe- penetrate like half a dozen of them. I, I have to go back and look at the numbers. But yeah, that's right. this, this is a, you know, a really insidious form of penetration and it doesn't, it's not like spear phishing or something. There's, I, I don't know really what the easy answer is. Uh, it seems like sec- network segmentation is one way to protect yourself. And some of the companies that I talked to who had MEDOC installed but did not get devastated by NotPetya had, you know, were aware that it was, uh, it shouldn't be trusted, that it should be like kept on a, on a, on a, on a computer where, it was essentially sandboxed with the privileges, um, and that saved them from disaster. But it's difficult to, I, I, you know, that's a uh, network administration, systems administration problem that is pretty complicated to keep track of all those applications. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, I mean that that inventory problem is is a big deal, even in relatively small companies. You know, and if some of the companies that you wrote about, you know, specifically Maersk, um, the one that's kind of the centerpiece of your story, um, I can't even imagine what their, you know, the IT inventory 
<laughs> situation is like in a company of that size. Um, tell well, me, that's right. And yeah. what happened was just in one finance executive in the Odessa branch of Maersk, you know, in this port city in the south of Ukraine, uh, asked for MEDOC to be installed so that he or she uh, could do their job of probably like paying taxes. So there is just one machine in, in Ukraine, in, in sorry, within Maersk's entire network that has MEDOC installed, at least one. But that was the one that got infected and spread, you know, this epidemic from Ukraine to Maersk and to the rest of the world by its global systems. I mean, 17 ports and 80,000 uh, staffers around the world. Yeah, it's crazy. You Early on in the piece, you, you paint a really nice picture of this enormous backup of container trucks outside the, the port of Newark. Um, you know, anybody that's ever flown into that airport, you can see that thing. And just imagine like miles of container trucks like backed up outside the gate and nobody knows what the hell's going on. Yeah, it's it's uh, it is a nightmare scenario. And it's kind of amazing that it that wasn't uh, reported on earlier, I find like I, I yeah, um, it's, it's kind of I, I still kind of am boggled by like how these companies shared so little of this Um these, you know, these attacks that I mean, maybe Maersk's was in some ways like the most visible, but we, I, I had never heard about that, that scene until I started to like really dig in and, and ask, um, you know, sources at Maersk about it at APM terminals, uh, at, you know, neighboring terminals at trucking companies. Um, and then only finally then did they start to describe this. And it, you know, these are, these are lines of trucks backed up for miles thousands of trucks uh in in at, at every one of these terminals and there were 17 out of 76 of Maersk has 76 terminals 17 of them in ports around the world were shut down that is like a uh you know it is it is the kind of digital nightmare scenario that i think we've all been imagining but when it happened it was so, very few people uh talked about it or you know, there was, I read like a, um, this shipping industry news site splash. They did a nice piece about the, uh, the kind of news of how Maersk got hit. But even then I didn't, I never heard that scene described. So it's, it is a, there's a weird lesson here too, about how companies, even when they get hit with the most massive cyber attack in history, just, you know, don't talk about it there. They don't want to, um, there's such a blame the victim mentality, I guess, in our industry that they, they, they just sweep it under the rug rather than risk looking like they screwed up. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's something we've seen with data breaches and things like that in the past. It's, you know, it's not an uncommon reaction, but it's funny when there's, you know, so much, uh, real world, like evidence of this kind of, uh, attack, you know, as you, as you said, like thousands of trucks backed up outside of, 17 ports around the world and people just didn't it obviously people noticed but it wasn't what they were focused on i guess um the other anecdote in the story that i really wanted to to ask you about is the bit where you talk about the um 
the folks at Maersk that are in this kind of uh, recovery center that's running 24-7 outside of London and they're trying to, you know, figure out what the hell happened and how to fix it and everything. And there's a, a point where they discover that they have one lone domain controller that had not been corrupted, um, that had luckily been taken offline by a by a blackout in Ghana. And that turns into like the the key for them getting back online. How did how did you stumble upon that little uh anecdote? Well, I I that was such a crazy story that I was really determined to to like find the the, the details of it. I would still have wanted to have a, more details if I could have, but it seemed like something that Maersk really didn't want people to to know about <laughs> uh, because it's, you know, it's just insane that this this one computer in Ghana turned out to be the linchpin for their whole recovery effort. I mean, if they hadn't had that, it, it could have been, you know, I, I was told it could have been weeks or months longer to recover. And that would have been just, you know, um, that probably would have made them the, the biggest victim of this attack rather than say like Merck, who probably it cost them more. Um, so I, you know, I heard tidbits of this. I heard descriptions of it from some sources, but I, I had to, to, to go through, I don't want to talk too much about sourcing, but I guess I, it, yeah. um, this seemed like it was held really close. So it took me like many, uh, interviews getting a little closer each time to finally assemble all of the details that are in the piece. And even then, you know, actually the editor in chief of Wired was like, this is such a crazy, crazy story. We need more details about this. Like describe to me what the, you know, uh, the Ghana data center looks like and stuff like that. And I was like, I, this is the best I can do. I've worked <laughs> hard to get this far. I can't, I don't have anything else. Yeah. Uh, but if any, if any Ghanaian Maersk staffers are listening, then I, you know, I'm all ears. I would love to hear more about this. I would too, because like, as you describe it as kind of a relay race where because of like visa problems or not problems, nobody in Ghana had a visa to get to England. Somebody had to fly to Nigeria. Somebody from England flew to Nigeria. They met, and then the you know the hard drive went back, and then they they used it as kind of like a you know a key to get everything back up and running. Um, and even with all that, it, they were off like kind of crippled for a couple of weeks, right? Well, they were they were uh, yeah, I would say that they were like fully crippled for a week, okay. uh, and. Um, you know, it, but it's all just very complicated. There's so many parts of of AP Muller Maersk, the the like overarching com, you know conglomerate, and they all started to come back in different at different speeds. And they um, like the first thing that they managed to get back online was the ability to process the the inventory files from the ships, so that basically when the ships arrived, they could start to figure out what was on them, which is such a you know a crucial part of their business. Um, and then they, you know, they got like Maersk line, the, their, um, websites running again to take more orders. And, but, you know, they were, um, still for, I, I, you know, I can't remember the exact timeline offhand, but, uh, for many days into the recovery effort, they were still taking orders via WhatsApp. They were like, you know, slapping like paper, um, documents onto shipping containers Everybody was worried that they were going to like blow away uh, or get you know fall off the because they they couldn't use their digital system to track the containers. Yeah, so, you know they were um, 
they were using personal Gmail accounts and things. Mm-hmm. It was still a total ramshackle um, operation of trying to just do whatever it took to keep the business running without without your computer systems, basically, um, for well over a week. And I and then it took I think it took about two months for the recovery effort to really uh, finish. I mean, people were still in that Maidenhead office working, you know, day and night to try to make the company, you know, function again for two months. That's, and that's well beyond the 10 days that Maersk, you know, kind of brags about as this heroic effort to rebuild the company. It it did take longer than that, but that shouldn't take away from the fact that Maersk did do an an amazing job of rebuilding. I don't know how many was it? 45,000 computers and yeah, thousands of servers to, to, you know, in, in 10 days. I think that is true. That's really insane. I, I have a feeling that this incident is going to be one of those things that like instant response teams study for the next 15 or 20 years. I, you know, that was my intention with this story was to provide a case study because, you know, that Maersk is just one of these companies, but it, it felt necessary. And it, what took so long, to be honest, you know, this is a year later than I would have liked, um, was just digging into all of these details to get the full, the fullest picture I could of, of what happened inside one of these companies. And I, you know, I know that there is the same story to be told about Merck and FedEx and, uh, the food company Mondelez that owns the Bisco, uh, and Cadbury and, um, this hit hospitals, you know, it, this is a hospital network in Pennsylvania, not just in Ukraine. Right. It, it, there are so many of these non-petitive stories out there, but uh, companies don't want to tell them. So it took me a really long time to tell this one, and I hope it will serve as a kind of case study. It's a great piece, man. I I really loved reading it. It's it's a hell of a piece of work. It was really well done. I really appreciate that. Um, and so I mentioned at the beginning, you're working on a book about all of this. Is it is it specifically going to be on not pet or is it going to be on kind of broader themes or is, is it just going to be that it's about the hackers behind not pet oh cool uh, who also are behind um i mean you can see the connections if you look into forensics and eset in particular uh has been really the the, the security firm eset uh, but others too have made these connections to show that it, it does seem to be one group that is linked to all of this and um john hulquist at FireEye has has been on top of this as well uh that this this hacker team called sandworm seems to be the through line through all of this from the blackout attacks in in ukraine to the destruction of many thousands of computers there the, really the whole cyber war in ukraine leading up to this not petia pandemic so sandworm this group of hackers is the subject of the book and I'll be tracing their whole history and, you know, trying to get as close as I can to, um, to telling, you know, the world who these guys, who these attackers are. That sounds awesome, man. I can't wait to read that. That's going to be, uh, that's going to be fun. I loved your first book, so I'm looking forward to it. It should be, that should be a lot of fun. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Dennis. I got to finish it. Yeah, <laughs> so, I know. <laughs> I know how painful that is. You know how how um, how long a slog it is. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's a story that really needs to be told, and that hasn't hasn't gotten told in the you know 
it's kind of been pushed aside by the the endless discussion of fancy bear and American election hacking. Like yeah. this is yeah. in a way a far scarier story to me. And, um, you know, that's why I'm spending a year writing it. It's also to me a much more interesting story. I mean, not that like the integrity of our democracy isn't interesting, but you know, I'm on a general basis, I'm more interested in reading about, you know, something like this, you know, this attack team that, you know, is probably affiliated with Russian intelligence on some level doing this kind of stuff, not just, you know, going after elections, doing, you know, real kind of targeted, um, cyber espionage and cyber, you know, I, I guess cyber war, I hate using that term, but well, you know, I, I generally have tried not to use the word cyber war, but now it's warranted. And that's, what's, that's, what's remarkable about this story. We're not talking about hypotheticals. We're not talking about like some future cyber nine 11, like this sandworm, it, you know, we don't, we can point to them and say they did cause blackouts. They did like, uh, you know, attack all these different layers of Ukrainian society and shut down pieces of infrastructure. They did release the most devastating malware in history, you know, that that's attacked everything from pharmaceuticals to shipping and logistics. Like this is not, a, a, you know, some sci-fi story about the future anymore. And that, you know, this sandworm did all of this stuff. So um, I feel like it's warranted now to talk about cyber war and cyber weapons and all of these terms that make us cringe because they've been overused, but this is real. It's, you know, it has happened now. Yep. Excellent point. Yeah. It has made me cringe for the last 15 years, but now, yeah, I think we are unfortunately in the era where it is warranted to use that term. Um, so, all right, Andy, listen, man, thanks so much for doing this and, uh, congratulations on that piece, man. It's really well done. Well, thanks for having me, Dennis. I'm really glad to get a chance to talk about it. You bet. All right, Andy, take care. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon.